Hi, everybody. I hope you're doing well. My co-host for today couldn't actually make it, so I brought in a guest co-host named Luis Peralta. Goes by the nickname Taco, a great friend of mine. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Friends, family, and listeners to our podcast, Go Entrepreneur Yourself, where we bring you local entrepreneurs and leaders from across the country and our town, Phoenix, Arizona, to share their story about adversity, triumph, and business. This is Jonathan, and my man, my co-host right in front of me is... It's uh, Luis here, also known as Taco. And today we bring you Rodney Hu, owner of the Yucca Tap Room, an iconic venue, as well as a hotspot in the arts and culture community of Greater Phoenix, founding partner of the Arizona Distilling Company, the first distiller in Phoenix that specialized in aged spirits, gin, and vodka. Selected as one of the first recipients of the Tempe Arts of Culture Award, celebrating people who made a significant contribution to the arts and culture. He has also been recognized as 100 most influential tastemakers, awarded um, to tastemakers in the state by Phoenix New Times Magazine. Yeah. Uh, along with his entrepreneurial drive, he has been a great community leader and contributor, contributor of charities. Uh, throughout the valley and fundraising as well as the board of the leadership organization called ASEL, Asian Corporate Entrepreneurs and Leaders. Most importantly, Rodney's passion lies in the cannabis industry and movement. He has helped launch popular brands such as Vital Infusions and Granddaddy Genetics and worked with state and local regulators to allow extractions in the state. Most recently, Rodney has started Granddaddy Genetics in California with Ken, uh, one of the earliest pioneers in the cannabis industry. Wow. <laughs> That is a lot. Um, thank you again, Rodney, for coming on to, onto our show. So uh, Thanks for having me. Appreciate <laughs> it. We're glad to have you here. So we like to start our shows off with the Fast Five. So it's five questions have practically nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about. They're supposed to be, you know, questions that get you a little bit looser, hopefully. <laughs> like so for the Fast Five, what I'm bringing you today is the first question is, what type of hot dog is your favorite? What type of hot dog? Or favorite hot dog place? Let's go with type of hot dog. Gosh, that's a tough one. I love, I love hot dogs. It's a weird kind of passion of mine, uh, or of just food. I'm a big foodie, so I've had hot dogs all over the place, from your Coney Coney dogs, uh, Dirty Water dogs in New York, your Chicago style, your Sonoran. I don't know that it gets better than my experience of having a long night of like. If you went out drinking or you had a good night out with some friends and stuff like that, um, probably I would say the Sonoran dog. And the reason why I say that is I like the bacon wrapped around it. I like the beans. I like like the chopped tomatoes, the chopped onions, the, you know, they do like that mayo and all that stuff. And there were like times that I, I had with my friends back in the day, we would be in like Mazatlan or be in Mexico or something, just like I said, a long night of drinking. And that would be my favorite dog, is a Sonoran dog. I like it. Sonoran <laughs> dogs, I grew up with them. I mean, my family knows the guys who started Huero Canelo. So. Oh, yeah. So, like, Huero's one of my favorite spots, for sure. And, like, I guess I'm a little biased because I am from, you know, the South uh, West, And that's, like, what they're famous for out here. But um, it is, that's my favorite dog. All right. Second question of the Fast Five is, what's your favorite guilty pleasure drink? What is my favorite guilty pleasure drink? <laughs> we won't judge you. Wow, that's, no a judgment that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, my favorite guilty pleasure drink. Let me think about that one. That's a tough one. 
Guilty pleasure. Okay, so I'm not supposed to be drinking anymore because I, I used to be a really big drinker. Obviously, that's part of the reason why um, I started the distillery with my friends and stuff is because we were like, hey, we like to drink, so we already kind of understand this. Um, there's some really nice aged whiskeys that I should not be drinking, but that I love to drink. And so that is probably my favorite guilty pleasure drink. There's like a really good uh, distillery from Taiwan called Cavalon. They've been voted like one of the top distilleries in the world for aged spirits. That's probably one of my favorites. And uh, if I ever have a chance to have some Cavalon, that's probably my, my one. I like it. All right, now we're going to flip it a little bit with a different type of question. It's still a favorite type, but okay. what's your favorite type of bird? My favorite type of bird? Peacock. That's very simple. That one came quick. I like it. So, if you could travel to any planet, which one would you pick and why is it Pluto? <laughs> uh, if I could travel to any planet, it's probably not Pluto. It's too far. I, don't, I think it would take forever to get to Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I probably would want to go to like Saturn or Jupiter first to experience like what it would be on those planets. Jupiter, because of the big, I probably would want to see what it would be to, to be there uh, and see that big, huge uh, gas thing that everybody's oh, yeah. they're famous for. And then Saturn, probably for the rings. Before so, they die out, before they, they start to like obliterate. Exactly, so I would probably be <laughs> one of those two planets. But, and then for Pluto, too far, I probably wouldn't go to Pluto. That wouldn't be my first. All right, and our last question of the Fast Five. With live music every day, does it get tiring auditioning the worst musicians? And why is the worst musician Justin Bieber? <laughs> uh, I don't think Justin Bieber is the worst musician. And the reason why I say that is because I'm, I'm bi- I don't really like country music. So I'm just that not a big sense. country music that makes fan. A lot of so sense. I would think country is probably not my favorite. Um, and it isn't tough to see live music every day and audition different people and just see different bands. Um, we've been supporting the scene for so many years and I've seen some of the best and some of the worst. Uh, I just think like it's an expression more than anything also. So to some people, there is some value in art there. Um, it may not be for everybody's taste, but it is for some. And like, I've just seen so many people kind of blossom and work their craft and kind of like become not the best musician and end up becoming something and doing some good stuff in some of the good local bands. So. Um, it's part of like growing too and it's part of overcoming that adversity right is like how, how passionate you are about like learning and getting better at that craft so it is tough to see some of the really bad musicians though so yeah yeah <laughs> sounds good that brings us to the end of our fast five so yes, thank you for those you survived the fast five nice right. I like that <laughs> um, so I want to get started um, I know you've done an array of businesses so I want to get into um, the one that your father started here in the valley so that's the Yucca Tap Room. So tell us, what inspired you to help take on that business? Um, and then what got you motivated into being into that type of business? <sighs> this is, a, this is a, a weird one. So for me, like, my dad, that was his love. And I always tell, I tell everybody this. That was like his, he spent more time at Yucca than he did with me, you know? So when, <laughs> when we would talk about it, I would be like, that really is your baby. I'm not really kind of your baby, even though I'm your kid and stuff. This is really your baby because like that was his extended family. That's where he spent all his time. It was like 
you know, for many years, it was kind of like the cheers of Tempe. Everybody knew everybody. You'd have like your regular, you know, your norm. And then you'd have like your, you know, mailman and your regular bartenders. And, you know, people had been going there for 20, 30 years. So he had built that legacy over time. And um, I was in New York working my dream job at that time was, you know, Wall Street. I was like, I, I wanted to do finance. So I graduated ASU. I, I moved out to New York to do finance. And um, what made me kind of come back to do the yucca was my dad was like, hey, I'm, I'm sick and I'm not doing well and you need to come back and take this over. So I really kind of had no intentions of, of taking over yucca, mm -hmm. but it was like his baby. So we talked about it a bunch of different times. Like, do you want to sell this? Do you, what do you want to do? And, mm -hmm. and he wanted to really keep it going. That was one of his dying wishes. So um, that's one of the main reasons why I've kept this legacy. He's like, I want this to be a legacy. I'd like for it to be a family legacy that we kind of keep it within our family and keep it going. So I was like, you know what? Um, I'm happy to freaking, you know, make that come true or, or, or even work towards doing that. And I moved back from New York at that time and basically kind of took over the Yucca. And that was like right after September 11th, 2001. So it was like 2003 um, area. And yeah, I took over the yucca, started running it, learned all the ropes, and and kind of have taken it to where it is now. Right. And then coming from like the Wall Street, the financial industry, how did you get the skills necessary to run a business? Because I don't know, what what did you do out in Wall Street? Were you working in... Uh, I did sales and trading for a okay. bunch of different firms and stuff, and I uh, I started out as analyst and, and did some stuff doing that, and it was a good time. I mean... I saw the movie Wall Street back in the day and I said, you know what, I want to be like Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen and these dudes and I want to like roll out in New York and experience that life. So um, I was already studying finance at ASU and I said, I'm going to move out there and kind of take this opportunity to go and do that. Um, and while I was out there, my, my roommate and I had talked about like starting a hedge fund and doing our own one. So that's probably where I first started getting that itch of like, oh man, I, we, I need to do my own business. I want to have like my own business. And I started reading a lot of books about um, starting your own business and doing that and having all these kind of like residual income models. Like you got to have all these different kind of things to give you residual income and then you just accumulate wealth that way. So that's kind of what I've always read these books as and kind of thought of. Um, but it was tough when you're doing a career out there because you're working so many hours and doing that life. But when I came back here... You know, I was, I was, it was tough for me to even find a job because I was, you know, every, every place I would interview, I was like, you were making way too much money. We're not going to be able to, you know, do that for you out here. So I kind of started looking like, you know what, I probably should start my own business or start doing some of my own businesses. And then, um, so I, Yucca was the first thing. Uh, we expanded it and did like the new side and the new side ended up becoming my side of doing some of the more, um, I guess varieties of craft beers and craft spirits and stuff like that and then uh, that's where I kind of got the itch and started doing other businesses which ended up being the distillery and doing getting into the dispensary business and and doing you know kind of learning about that stuff thank you for sharing that now when you transitioned into the yucca how did you scale that much revenue for this uh, small, almost divey bar? Uh, the first thing I did was um, I w had a conversation with Gavin 
from Casey Moore's, and he had a big presence at Casey Moore's. Um, kind of, he was a partner with them at that time, and we were talking about doing draft beer because Yucca Tap Room, my dad, didn't have draft beer, and it was called the Tap Room, but he got rid of the draft beer because all the beer lines went bad on his long draw system. <laughs> so he just like didn't want to deal with it anymore, and was like, I only want to do cans and bottles. And then so I started talking to Gavin, and Gavin's like, you can grow your business just by adding the tap beer aspect because there's people that want to drink the tap beer, and you need to do that. So that was one of my first changes. And then my second one was you got to start taking credit cards because we were only doing cash for a, a while. And then another thing that we started doing was started booking all different genres of music. It wasn't just like one specific genre. I, I, I opened up to do a bunch of different genres to kind of diversify there. So mm -hmm. there were little changes like that. And then I expanded into the other room, which doubled our size. So those are a couple things that really helped kind of get us to that point to where we're at now. And, continuing to grow the business yeah because i i just went there yesterday oh yeah i know you, know. you went last night you should have told me i would have hooked you up i know i i missed you and um it was like last minute i mean it was planned two hours before that text but it was still last minute <laughs> for me because i was just getting out the gym but yeah i really like that you i think recently you won the what was it like the phoenix's best best of phoenix awards for Electric, that, uh, bat, the, the bat, arcade, mm -hmm. the arcade, but also um, the bar the, food for Bao Chow. Chow. And, and then even driving there, I saw some art on the side. I don't know if that has to do with you, or, but that was really cool. Just like driving there, it's really on, on the back end of like Tempe. It looks kind of hidden, but it's a really nice area. Yeah. So, what, um, how did you guys get uh, to be recognized in that way? Um, the, okay, so where do I start? I'll start with the expansion of Electric Bat. So Electric Bat happened um, with, I, I started, you know, obviously it's it's um, kudos to all the guys that are, like the Cobra guys and what they're doing in downtown Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And I saw the success that they were having and then people were like asking me, said, hey, you know, I started talking to my new partner, Sean, and I said, hey, you know, we have the space. Our office is right next to here. And I'm gonna. I have. I own the property. I own that commercial space. I said, why don't we just move over into this other space and let's expand the yucca and do the arcade? And he said, that's not a bad idea. I go, yeah, it's right in our office anyway. So my partner and I started discussing how we would figure out what to do on the video game aspects because we were like, do we need to go out and buy them? Is it better to go and rent them? So we had. A, we actually had a conversation with some of the Cobra dude, or you know, the, the Cobra dude, and. Um, and uh, so we went over to ZapCon and we started talking to a bunch of the different vendors because I said, oh, let's just start researching it and trying to figure this out. So we talked to a bunch of the different pinball and video game guys and uh, the unanimous kind of thing that every one of those guys told us was like, you should really talk to Rachel. Rachel's local here. She has a bunch of games. She really knows the business. She's really, you know, a really nice person. So Sean and I said, you know what? Let's, let's have lunch with her or have coffee with her and, and talk to her and see if she's even interested and let's go from there. And we kind of started talking about the idea. We kind of started uh, talking about like how we would do it in the space and, and showing it. And then here we are now and we just won Best of for, for Best of Phoenix, for mm -hmm. Phoenix New Times, for Best Arcade. That's pretty cool. I, um, and then I want you to talk specifically of what, to me that's amazing how it's not even like your typical, you know, AB joystick like arcade place. 
It's uh, pinball machines. Yeah, a lot of it is pinball machines. That's what we kind of specialize on there. Uh, Rachel has a, a good following for all that. She knows that business. She's a, she's amazing. <laughs> she's been a really amazing partner. I can't even I can't even just like brag about her enough. Um, she's been great for Sean and I to have brought her in to do that part, and we're actually getting ready to expand it even more and add in more games. So <laughs> it's gonna be really cool. And in that part of the expansion, it's gonna be really interesting because we're gonna have another little, tiny little bar over there where we're gonna have some stuff that's select to that bar versus our other ones. So it'll make it a little more, a little different. Right. Um, and get some people to go over there. Oh, absolutely, on that side of it too. And it'll be really cool. So yeah, that, that was definitely an amazing, amazing thing. And it's been really great for our business. And Yeah, that's, and then, um, how I know you mentioned it a little bit about how you market that business when you were growing it, uh, scaling the business to you know getting the tab, um, the menus, uh, changing, uh, having different genres of live music. But what is a market that really helped you? Uh, that was a tactic that you used that was successful in getting more people to come. Knock on wood, those those moves uh, like the tap beer. Um, obviously offering the credit cards and not cash only, expanding the bar. Those were some, probably some of the key positive moves that we made that, um, that really changed our business. Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of added to the diversity and you just get, you know, get a certain reputation over time. We always have been good with everybody. We like to take care of the bands. We like to take care of the arts and culture. That's part of what we can talk about too, is like the arts and culture thing was really spurred by, um, this gentleman, Rob Moore, he, he's uh, a part of the city's kind of arts and cultures, just community. And he came to me and we're talking about like my vision for what we wanted to do there. And for many years, that plaza was empty because the city had owned the middle because they were going to demo it and they were going to do a bunch of different projects. And then through the time, those projects fell through and never happened. So that's why that entire plaza is empty. And it was like we were that one of the sense. only surviving businesses in there. So it was just like Yucca and then there's Sky High. And it's like all the stuff in my building. Everybody else is just kind of floundering. So we're just like, geez, you guys. So I was talking to Rob and I said, you know what would be really cool is we need to activate this space. And let's do it and bring arts and culture to this whole plaza. Yeah. So we started talking about it. And um, we started talking about doing the murals. and. And, and we started getting submissions from a lot of different local artists and that's how the whole thing kind of got commissioned to do all the local art in there and all those murals in there. It's kind of like the hidden secret of yeah. local art murals, I think, in town. A lot of people aren't really talking about it. They talk about what happens downtown here and right. stuff like that. But there's some really, really cool um, art that's happening down there and those murals that are down there are really cool. No, I love this. The first thing I saw when I came, because the first time I went, the murals weren't up, and I think that was a year ago, because when you all recently just put that up, didn't you? It's been there for, I want to say, probably close to a year or yeah. so. So I know for sure, when I first went, it wasn't, but when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's cool. Because last time I went there, I felt like, oh man, what, what, am I in the right place? It's yeah. really dark. It, 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 it seems like a hidden spot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, am I going to the speakeasies or something? <laughs> but yeah. uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, that's great. I'm glad that I'm glad that you brought that up. And one thing I want you to bring up on the podcast, um, because I know not all our listeners maybe are familiar with the Yoga Tap Room, is how you have all all year long you have a, a live show every night. Pretty much, 
There's some <laughs> nights we don't, where if, if a band cancels and whatever. But we've always really supported the local, um, just local and national music. We were one of the last remaining venues in Tempe, live music venues in Tempe, and we've just we've supported it for so long, and we've done it for so long on the DJ and band kind of level that it's it would be crazy for us to change and go a different direction or anything. So we've just been doing it for so long that it's, it's what we've been known for and we still want to support and do that and give back. And we, you know, we're big on, on supporting like music and stuff like that. It's awesome. Does that longevity of having been known for doing that help you? So you don't have to really compete with neighboring businesses such as they hate to bring them up, but low key. Cause I know low key does five music almost every night, but it's the same type. Um, you know, we, I, I think that, like we, like I said, we've kind of been doing it for so long and we have so many guys that have supported us um, musician-wise and stuff like that, that it, it definitely does help, I think, to have a good reputation of how we treat bands. We always treat them really well and, um, and be known for that. So, yeah, I think that it, it probably does help us on the competition-wise when there are other venues that pop up and, and try to do stuff for sure, yeah. Well, that leads me to, I guess, a silly question, but it is one thing in about long term, and it kind of can help us segue into cannabis, to talk about cannabis. If Arizona were to become a state where cannabis is legal, such as, say, Oregon or Colorado, would you foresee a yucca taproom-like business or live music every day people can come in and light up, just relax? Uh, for recreational, if that does pass, I do think that that would happen. It's already happening in Colorado, and you look at the coffee shops that are happening in California and some stuff like, and other rec states. And I think that it actually is—it's a better thing. It's healthier. It's—it's um, it's something that I feel should have never been made illegal in the first place, and it's kind of the end of prohibition as we know it. And as people kind of start getting educated on this and learn the reasons why it was illegal and stuff like that, they'll start to realize that it was all about, you know, government control. And it was really all about like controlling race. And when you kind of, kind of start, you know, educating yourself and you start figuring these things out, you're like, well, wow, I didn't know that that was the reason why. And, and it goes back to just government control over infiltrating people's homes, filling up privatized prison population, things like that. And it gets really political, but you're just like, man, that's why they made this plant illegal. And um, it has so many uses. Um, you know, the hemp and cannabis um, plant has probably the most uses of any plant in the world. It will be the number one traded commodity in the world. It's gonna change the world and how we see it and how we do things. And it'll just be amazing the more and more that it becomes part of our culture and becomes a part of you know ev the world itself. It's just going to really change things. And yes, so basically to answer your question, sorry that I get on this tangent, is that's fine. I do believe that there will be these places where people can go and consume, whether it's a coffee shop, whether it's a venue, and things like that. If it if it would be yucca and the cities and municipalities would allow them, I would love to have one you know in my building and to have a spot to do that because I do think that. Uh, it there it's a great thing with this burgeoning cannabis market at least in Arizona like ready to explode as soon as it becomes recreational like how how are you gonna keep up with that market are you gonna look towards other other states to try to figure out how that market's gonna shape in Arizona or do you think it's gonna become more have its own Arizona spirit injected into it 
Um, it really depends on the companies and how the companies are run and who they're run by. You know, some of the bigger ones I don't th that are some of the bigger multi-state operators, um, like the Cure Leafs and, and Harvest and stuff like that. They probably will run them a little differently. Like they're going to have like probably the same store in every one of the states, and they'll probably run their kind of model the same way. Uh, as far as like the local centric things, like I said, it, it just really depends on which group it is. You know, ideally for the territory dispensary um, and our guys we can kind of keep the whole local thing going and and yes if we had the opportunity to expand and go into other states i wouldn't say that we we wouldn't take that opportunity to do it um i i love our stores i think our whole kind of um, look and feel and and how it is to go into a dispensary is is different than a lot of others um and we've kind of taken that open floor plan and and kind of ran with that as part of our concept so yeah, I think that that's really cool. I was looking at photos of Territory Dispensary and I'm like, it looks really nice, like really high class quality. I feel like I was going to an Apple store before cannabis. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the next time I have an opportunity, I should take you and give you a tour and show you around and kind of show you how we do things and stuff. I think that it's really cool to go be able to have that experience to go mm -hmm. in there. And, and like I said, it, cannabis and hemp itself should never be anything that people are ashamed of. And mm -hmm. I think that that whole kind of the genie's out of the bottle now so it's going to be a really good part of the movement yeah and how has licensing and legislation affected the way that you've done business in the cannabis industry arizona is is really interesting because it's limited to a certain number of licenses there's only 130 in the state and you get the full vertical model so the way that these um, businesses in Arizona are run versus like a California or even Colorado is a lot different to have that vertical model because you need a, a different license for every aspect of the business. Oh, wow. Whether it's like distribution or, you know, extraction or cultivation, things like that. Yeah. So it's a little bit different in that, in that sense. So yeah, running the businesses is more capital intensive and there is the opportunity to do a lot more different stuff that way for sure here in Arizona. Yeah, and then I, I was looking, I'm really curious about some legislation that has been passed due to you being a driving force in like, in setting the stage for, for like the marijuana explosion here in Phoenix. Because I was reading um, a little bit about... Oh, uh, for extraction and yeah, kitchen and stuff yes. like that. Yeah, for vital. We, we were one of the first ones in the state that... Uh, we're doing measured doses when, when, you know, the whole movement back in 2012 and 13, um, you know, edibles at that time, you're talking about like, oh, I want a four or five dose brownie or I want a freaking candy that's like three or four dose. There wasn't really kind of like a measured dosage back at mm -hmm. that time. Oh, okay. And so our group <laughs> kind of broke it down and we started breaking down the THC and the cannabinoids and milligrams. So we started saying, oh yeah, it's like, you know, 10 or 20, 15 or 20 milligrams of THC. So it was more measured doses and it had to be tested and how, and how we did our infusion was, was very measured. And, and that's kind of what the stuff that we brought to the, the state. And, and uh, we were supplying one of the epileptic kids that had a bunch of seizures. His name was Xander. We were supplying him with high dose CBD and his seizures went down tremendously. And uh, so we, we helped kind of spur that movement of allowing extraction in kitchen, which they just had another ruling that um, is allowing it just because the state is, state politicians are weird about it. Um, but yeah, I think it's part of the movement of, of going forward and pushing this envelope forward and really educating people about it and 
and looking at the business as a more kind of serious part of doing extraction and kitchen and things like that for sure. And we helped, yeah, spur that. That's awesome. What, what it, now, it's crazy. Uh, I, reading about you, you're very passionate about this industry. What got you uh, interested into going this route from like working, and now you went, now we're talking about Wall Street, working with the Yugga Tap Room, Arizona Distilling Company, being one of the founding members, and now going into like uh, the cannabis industry. Like, what was it about it that got you? Aside maybe from trying something in college dorm room. It's a, it's a great story. My One of my partners in the distillery, Matt Cummins, a uh, good friend of mine, told me, he's like, Rodney, the movement's getting ready to pass here. I think the vote's going to get ready to pass in Arizona. We should kind of get behind the movement of cannabis. And he thinks, he's like, you own this commercial space here. I own that space that's next to Yucca and all, all that commercial space. So he said, you know, maybe it'll qualify for a dispenser. We should look into it. So for me, I said, yeah, I'm definitely interested because I didn't think there's anything wrong with it. Started reading about it, started researching it and started really meeting people and networking, going to a lot of the seminars and a lot of the things for it. This was back in like 2009 or 10. And uh, the more and more I started reading about it and the more and more I started educating myself about it, I was like, you know what? This is this stuff is amazing for people. It actually helps people and it's a good thing and it's a good thing for the community. And I was just like, it should have never been made illegal. And you know, they, like I kind of mentioned before, they were doing it, the government was doing it to control, you know, Latin Americans, Hispanics mm -hmm. and African Americans. And really they used it as a, them. absolutely to criminalize them, privatize prison population. Mm -hmm. And if it goes back even further because for Asians in the whole Asian, when Asians were out here building the railroad systems, uh -huh. they were using the opium trade yeah. as uh, making that illegal. So it's just like you start educating yourself and you start like researching it and you're just like, man, they were just holding our, you know, they wanted to infiltrate people's home, like minorities' homes and put, you know, put these people away in jail. And when you take away their breadwinner and that person that kind of keeps that home stable and brings in income for that home, how is that family supposed to survive when you take that person out of the equation? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's hard enough as it is to just try to make it on your own, let alone have a family and have like, a, a, you know, a couple kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, I just arrested the father of this family, the only breadwinner, because the mom's probably a stay-at-home mom, uh -huh. and you know the father is br bringing in the income, and he just got arrested for a joint, and he's thrown in jail for ten or fifteen years yeah. or some ridiculous, you know, stuff, you know, and you start hearing these stories, reading about this, and just learning about this. Like, how is that family supposed to ever make it? Yeah. It's, they're going to be poor forever, you know, so 10 or 15 years. That's a long time. And even, even if he gets out on good behavior and they cut it in half five years, that's still a long time. Yeah. So it, it kind of made me more, I guess it woke up, it woke me up to the whole movement. It woke me up to everything about it. And it just made me want to fight more to make it legal and, because I really believed in it. And I kind of feel well, while my dad was going through cancer and stuff that he would have had another, um, he probably could have lived longer if it wasn't for having to go through, you know, all the, the opiate stuff, like the morphine and all the stuff that they gave him and having to go through chemo. And he had like another alternative, like cannabis kind of stuff, you know, cannabinoids and things like that. So 
that was another one of the reasons. And so that's what kind of made me really get behind it and really be a believer in it. And the more I started getting into it, reading about it, I just wanted, I just geeked out over it. I wanted to be like the expert and know what I'm talking about, you know? So I started reading all the different research and books. And there was one guy in particular of, of a, and that stands out to me, that'll always stand out to me. He was a PhD, Harvard professor that the Nixon Presidential Commission had hired to research this, Lester Grinspoon. He gave this keynote speech at one of the um, symposiums that I was at. Uh-huh. And he's up on stage in front of, you know, hundreds of guys at that time. This was in like 2010 or 11. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about it. And he's like, you know, the Nixon Presidential Commission hired me to research this. My best friend and I, he's best friends with like Carl Sagan, astronaut, another really smart guy and and they yeah yeah, they really believed in cannabis and he's he's like i we believe in it we think it's actually good for people we can't find anything wrong with it but my son was going through chemotherapy treatments at the time for cancer and he's sitting there giving this speech and he's like um my son asked if if you know he could try it and try to try to you know use cannabis to try to go get through the chemo stuff and He's like, I can't because I'm, I'm, I'm even hired from the Nixon, you know, it's illegal and I'm hired from these guys to, to research this. And he starts crying. He said, the day that changed my life was to see my son go through this stage of, you know, he's withering away from the chemo. He's losing all this weight. He doesn't have any energy. He doesn't have an appetite. He doesn't have all this stuff. And then there was one day he came out and he just was like, he felt great. He's like, Dad, let's go get a sandwich. Let's go, you know, throw the ball around. Let's go hang out. Let's go do that, do stuff. And he's, he's like crying on stage in front of everybody. And he uh-huh. said, you know, the day it changed for me was when I asked my son, why the difference in your perspective on everything? And he's like, well, Mom got me a joint. I tried it before my chemo, and that's how I feel right now. And he's <laughs> just like, my whole world just changed. And he wrote a book about it. There's strain named, out, named after him. So after wow. hearing that speech in front of me, it just like shook me. And I... I'm a believer. I fully believe in this. And I think that, like I said, the hemp and cannabis movement, it'll, it'll be the number one traded commodity in the world. And we have a real big opportunity right now that it's like the end of prohibition as we know it. Mm-hmm. So if you were able to say uh, in your lifetime, you know, if someone came to you and said, hey, before oil becomes such a huge traded commodity or before gold or wheat or corn becomes a huge traded commodity, it's, you know, because it's been made illegal for so long. Mm-hmm. If you could try to get ahead of that, and I'm going to give you the heads up right now. This is where we're at right here at this point in our lives for the hemp and cannabis industry. I guess that leads me to the question. I don't know if, if Jonathan's finally asking this one, but I think it's an important question to ask is, what would you tell as someone who's invested in both on a personal and a business level? What would you tell voters if this would be on a ballot next year in Arizona? Some progress is better than no progress all day long. So to me, a lot of the stuff of the guys that are fighting against it because I don't, I, I want to be able to get a license. They're not issuing as many licenses or they're not making it as easy enough for me as a rec guy. It should be easier for me to grow or it should be easier for this. If you look at where we were 10 years ago and where we are now in the movement, to even have it as a medical system and to be able to even say it's going to become wreck in this state when it should never have been made illegal in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's better to have some progress to keep pushing the envelope forward because there's nobody that says that you can't make change as change starts to happen, right? So to be able, I say, let it go wreck. 
let wreck happen. And then all the other things that you aren't happy about it with, start pushing to make those changes for the next round or the next round. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like nothing's set in stone. Yeah. There's all kinds of incremental change that will happen. It's going to happen through every state. You have to think that this was – it's a Schedule One drug. They rate cannabis <laughs> like you would, you know, meth yeah. and shit like that. It's like unbelievable. So mm. you're talking about a time in our lives where you've got more than half the states now that are okay with it. Everybody's starting to educate themselves and like, you know, older people are realizing that CBD has all these benefits. So everybody's talking about CBD and all these other can – like we're only on the – like the – tip of the iceberg right now of where this is going to go this is going to change the world i really believe that and i it's crazy so yeah i think that i would tell all the voters it's better to vote yes and have this be some positive progress change to positively push this envelope forward than none at all mm -hmm. it's better to have some change it's inevitable. It is inevitable, <laughs> and it is better to push it forward than like hold it back and say, "Oh no, I want to keep pushing for wait for next time, wait for next time." Why? To make it harder for everybody? Mm -hmm. Like you want to make things easier for everybody so you, it, you can become more a part of society and not have to deal with all the stigmas and stuff. You know what I mean? That's part of educating people. For most like investors, I mean, I, you're obviously dedicated to that movement. What are like unique risk? in the cannabis industry uh, when you're investing because i know you now help um, invest in a product line vital uh, what was it vital yeah we've done high class we did vital we've uh -huh. done you know we're part of the ganja goo brand um obviously territory dispensary is is our dispensary that's part of our group uh, I helped start, you know, the grand, not start really, I, I partnered up and did some, you know, stuff with the granddaddy genetics thing. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm, I'm getting ready to start a tissue, uh, tissue, tissue culture company with um, a really good group of, of partners that I have in that that are all PhDs, just really sharp on the science side to do R&D and to really just push the envelope forward on the cutting edge of cannabis and hemp and the science end of things and research and development and, and is, doing products and doing all that stuff. So yeah. And is, are, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I was looking at tissue cultural company. Is that like cultivation? That's, that's a part of, okay. So every agricultural industry, if you look at strawberries and cucumbers and those industries, they do tissue culture to maintain consistency of these specific types of strawberries or specific types of cucumbers or even, you know, like if there's a like for example in the tomato industry there's the hothouse tomato or there's the roma tomato there's the cherry tomato there's all these different types yeah so as you can imagine in cannabis and hemp there's all these different strains right there right. are so many different strains the varieties go probably go into you know thousands and thousands of different strains that are going to have all these different cannabinoid profiles all these different terpene profiles so you just have to imagine to maintain consistency of Whatever is your favorite strain, let's just say it's Granddaddy Perk or it's Girl Scout Cookie or, you know, or whatever these strains that are, whatever OGs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you want to maintain that consistency throughout so whoever that likes that strain, that uses that strain, knows that they're going to get that same effect every time. Mm -hmm. So that's where the tissue culture company stuff and the genetics and the authenticity and all those things are, are they know what they're going to get. You know that that's the strain when someone says it's the strain. It's not just because they named it that, you know, and people will know without a doubt, a hundred percent how it gives, it's more of the consumer confidence, I guess, in that product. Yeah. And that's where that company is. 
And that's, that's part of, the, of what we're going to try to introduce in that industry is to be able to validate and, and have some validity and, and really give that authenticity um, to these cultivators that when they want to cultivate and kind of help them um, do it more efficiently and have more consistency and not have as many issues with disease and bugs and all those kind of other challenges that they're going to deal with and know that they're going to get these strains and get these clones and whatever that it comes out the same every time as, as, as a cultivator. Right, you expect it to, the product you always like, you expect it to taste the same. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. When we're talking about these types of products, I'm thinking about specifically cannabis and talking about how you have people who are investing in this and they want you to have like the tissue culture companies so we make sure we get the same product. Is it hard to raise funds for this? You know what? I'm in the process of going through that right now. So we're actually gonna be doing a capital raise for it. So I'll, we'll see. We've been kind of talking to a, a few different people about it. We don't think it's gonna be too difficult because the interest is really so high about it right now. Mm -hmm. But in all the experience that I've had in every one of the businesses that I've done, I think it's more important to have the right set of partners that have the same um, outlook and vision that you have on what you want to see with and do with your company that uh, that is with anything else. So if you're going to bring on investors, that's a, that's one of those things that I, I would tell anybody out there that listens is that you got to make sure that even if if you've got a guy that says I'm going to fund it 100% and you and you're like eager to go get his money or like it's a Shark Tank thing or you're doing a, a specific pitch or a raise. But it's more important than just getting that money and getting it started to make sure that that partner's right. Because if that partner's not right mm. and he does fund it, and a year or two later you guys have different viewpoints on how to run the company, it's going to fall apart. And you want, and you want to do these businesses. You want to do these things for the longevity of them to make them last, you know, yeah. to really do do some good good work. So That's important. Yeah, for sure. I didn't even consider that. And not, not a lot of people realize even how difficult it is to break even – make profit with these type of businesses um, that you're doing. Um, so you can answer it to like the yucca or the cannabis, what you're working on now, because I know you were talking about some of the, the funds that you're raising for, but um, how have you dealt with, the, with this issue and when did you see that it started to pay off um, and that it became a financially sound decision for either yucca or uh, cannabis? <laughs> <laughs> for Yucca, I guess as it started growing and started doing more business and we started getting recognized more and people, you know, you have customers that kind of come up and, and give you compliments and it's good to hear from the community. And then you start talking to different people and everybody kind of knows about, you know, the bar and things like that. Though I think those kind of recognitions are cool about Yucca. That's part of success. It's not just the monetary success. Um, as far as a cannabis business goes, like, we're just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... I could say for me, you know, I put in a ton to try to get it up and going and started and we're, you know, we're at this point and we're starting to finally see the fruits of our labor starting to happen and stuff, but we're still not there. And I think it like, it's still, like I said, it's the tip of the iceberg of where this is going to go. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I'll see like the monetary success of that until later, but you can tell that it's going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. And um, just getting the recognition and be able to put out really good products and, and really get to talk to good people in the community. Like I said, to the measurement of success isn't just the monetary part of it. It's, it's the, 
you know, the recognition and to be able to go out there and be proud of your brands and go out to talk to people in the industry and they give you compliments and say good things to you and, you know, be a, be a positive influence for the, for the community and for the industry. On that note, thinking about, like, I'm going to focus on cannabis for this one. Would you say that cannabis, the industry, at least in states where it's still medical but not recreational, would you say they have limited resources in those states for you? Mainly because part of the states is, yeah, you can use it if you have a card. But then the big government's like, no, it's still Schedule 1. Part of it's like, it's still recognition. Would you say there's limited resources because of that? Limited resources from the state? I would say state and general. Yeah, yeah state. So on the, on the limited resources from the state... Um, the state has a kitty for our medical marijuana system, medical cannabis system here, that I want to say the last I had heard is over like $50 million from fees that they've collected. And they're sitting on this kitty and they operate the Department of Health on just the dividends of this fund. So it's, a, it's almost a racket in the state. Because when you talk about like, oh, I don't know where to get funds for education or anything like that, or putting into schools or into the systems, it's like, yo, Ducey, you're sitting on this fund. Mm-hmm. Allocate some of that to the back into the industry or back yeah. into some schools or do some stuff to help the state. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And that's just where like politics are. It's just a weird time in politics, right? And it's just, yeah, you don't, you don't ever want to get into politics and you don't want to get in and talk about it. But when you think about where this money gets directed and goes and to answer mm-hmm. your question about the funds, it's like, yeah, it's limited because – it gets held up in politics. It gets into the yeah. bureaucratic process and it should be allocated differently, you know? So yeah, I think it is limited in that sense and it is limited for the medical system because there's only so many customers that can buy so much. So that's a limited part of the budget that they, that they will buy. But if it goes wreck, obviously it opens it up for the entire state. So, or, you know, 21 and over and things like that, which is obviously a lot better. And as a business owner, um, Dealing with all this, you know, uh, this legislation, the policies, getting the licensing for all these sort of things. For somebody that's interested in the cannabis industry, what sort of recommendations or roadblocks? Well, well, first, what sort of recommendations do you have for them that want to get into this business? And then what sort of roadblocks should they watch out for? Okay. Uh, I hear this a lot from a lot of people that are looking to get into the business and stuff. My best advice for that would be to learn as much as you can about the business so you know what you're talking about. And then do you have like, I don't know, specific articles or maybe books that help there's, you? There's so many online. I would, there's, I would start like educating yourself on the history of it all first mm-hmm. yeah. so, you, so you can understand of where <laughs> this whole movement kind of began and why we got there so you can have that educated conversation about, about it. And then I would start learning about like dispensary operations and where the movement is politically and, and like, you know, be able to have a conversation about going rack and kind of like, you know, the questions that you guys are asking in the medical system and understand that. And then I would kind of understand the aspect of how it helps you and specific strains. So I would kind of really learn everything you can about it and then start going to a community events, start going to some of the advocacy events, like, you know, some of the normal stuff or MPP or, uh, even start, you know, visiting your local dispensary and talking to the dispensary bud tenders and people there and, and just starting to meet people that are part of all the associations of the businesses themselves and um, start networking, right? Like just like anything else, if you're trying to do that, 
Um, and not that this wouldn't work in other industries. Obviously, if you're in another industry, like if you're trying to get into esports or something, you're going to try to learn about all the different video games and learn about all that stuff. Mm. So in the yeah, hemp and cannabis yeah. part, <laughs> do the same steps. And you can use this as advice in anything that you're going to want, any other business that you want to get involved in. And then start networking and then you talk to more people. As you talk to more people and you, you have intelligent conversations, you'll find a more like-minded people as you. And then before you know it, you'll be working in the industry doing something and doing what you love. You know, It's like finding your passion. Find that passion of what part of the industry you want to get involved in. Do you want to be a bud tender? Do you want to run a place? Mm -hmm. Do you want to do marketing? Do you want to work for an extraction company? Do you want to get into cultivation? There's so many aspects too. Yeah. So, Find whatever you, part you want to get into and like really start at home and home, like, you know, narrowing down what you want to do. Awesome. I love those details. <laughs> that's so great. That's what it's all about, I think. Yeah. You know, that's just part of life, I think. It's like finding your passion and becoming an expert in your passion. And then when you spend time in doing it and learning it and, and honing those skills, like, you're going to get total no a hundred times but that hundred and one time that you don't get told no and it starts turning and getting positive uh -huh. for you it's amazing how that positive karma just goes out there yeah and when you start just building it's like you're building blocks it's like dude just keep pushing through that's overcoming adversity it's like like I said hundred times you can be told no but that hundred and first time that you're told yes and you build from that first time you get told yes and the second time you get told yes and the third time and it's like more yeses now and then your career starts building and you just start getting to do what you like and love. Right. And it's crazy because when I was in uh, starting college early two, uh, early 2000s, I don't even know what, 2012. 2012. Is that early? <laughs> 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 that is. Early 2010s. Early 2010s. Um, I don't even remember recalling there being many uh, cannabis companies in the stock market so like my friend was talking about man I, I just know I want to get into investments with all this uh, can and now he's like made a lot of money because yeah he invested in them. If, especially if you got in early yeah and I remember I'm like thinking in my head man this is you know from Arizona where it's like you know red state a lot of people are very uh, um, against you know using um, medical marijuana and at that time I was like no, I don't think that ever passed that's uh, it's just too it's, that's crazy, man. I don't know what you're talking about. But now it's like we got uh, Cronus Group. We got um, Afria, like those big like ones oh, in Canada. Big, yeah. yeah. Um, and we have some companies here that, you know, want to uh, get on Go there. <laughs> but uh, it, it's just insane to me how much that this industry is growing. And I really do. I'm, I'm a firm believer that it's very beneficial for the community. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely, yeah. especially the Latin America and Hispanic community. Big time, bro. Mm -hmm. These guys locked up guys for just smoking a joint. Yeah. Or having an you know, having a you know, a pipe in their car or something stupid, right? Or yeah. a little baggie or whatever it might be. And just imagine, this has never harmed anybody. No one has died from this ever. And they just <laughs> try to make this demon drug out of it so they could start arresting people. It's just mm -hmm. disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> 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 oh man um, now I want to go more into like how like some advice that you would give to these uh, to, to these entrepreneurs because most of our audiences are, are millennials Gen Z uh, younger audiences um, what failures in the past have helped you to your success because you're a smart individual thank you you're a smart guy coming from Appreciate Wall Street it. working with the dogs out there and then coming back here, um, what what sort of failures have really led to your success? 
I think that you have to learn from every one of your failures. Um, obviously, the my distillery uh, deal on that, like I started that with literally like my best friend. He was like my best dude, and um, things didn't go right on how we how we looked at running the company and. You know, we brought in other partners. I brought in another one of high school friends of mine, and you know, one thing leads to another, and and then things don't, things didn't work out there. And then I started, I, you know, I ended up putting more time into the dispensary business and started getting more involved in the dispensary side, in part of the cannabis movement and stuff. And I think that I learned from that whole experience of the distillery thing, how that just really changed. You know, I thought I was going to run that business with them for the rest of my life, right? And I, I never kind of thought I wasn't going to ever do that with them anymore. And just kind of going through that experience um, taught me a lot. It taught me about some perseverance. It taught me about like you know how you how you um, you know how you trust people and how you're trusting of partners and things like that. And you know, going through those uh, parts of my life in the business and the adversity of that and overcoming that, I guess. Um, taught me to really, um, I guess, what is that? What, what you can learn? Like I said, just learning from that. It wasn't really a mistake because I, I was a learning experience, and I enjoyed right. every moment of it. Nothing but, is a nothing is a mistake or a failure if you're, there's learning. Correct, and you learn from all those instances and learn how to not repeat them and learn, you know, take a positive out of that and keep pushing forward and just. Just stay positive about what you're doing, and, and like I said, you'd want to learn from every one of these experiences so you don't have to repeat right. them ever again, you know? And I, one topic that you brought up about AZ Distilling Company, um, I don't, I, I want you as, as comfortable as you feel of like sharing information about like you mentioning like walking away from that business. As a business owner, when do you walk away from like something you're pursuing? Because a lot of times people uh, are encouraged to be optimistic and to have, um, um, some sort of like risk to be risk averse to be able to like go through all the challenges that an entrepreneur has to go through when do you walk away from something like that when is it like you know what maybe there's something else out there for me it's a great question great question um, I think that you'll know when you start weighing all the pros and cons of what you're doing and how you're doing it and where things stand currently. And this is why I kind of mentioned earlier in this in this kind of discussion of ours and interview of ours about the whole making sure your partners have the same outlook and viewpoints as you do. Because even if you have all these positive intentions and you want to do the right thing and you want to make the most money with these guys, those guys might not have the same outlook as you. And that's why it's such a great question of when do you know it's the exit? It's a hard question because and my outlook on the dis distillery was I probably was going to always do that. But there was going to come a time where I said, hey, it's worth however much now. And maybe that's my time to exit. Whereas another one of my partners might have been like, I want to keep this forever. And this is my legacy that I want to give to my kids. Mm -hmm. And then you have another partner that might be like, oh, I only want to be a part of this like five to ten years. And then I'm good. And I want to just sell out and move on to my next thing. I I think you have to weigh all the pros and cons. You have to weigh how much you like being in that business and what your role is and how you're doing things. And then what is your intention or your goal to in the next three to five years of what you're going to do business-wise of if it's not one particular business, it's another one. Or am I starting another one? Like where is your focus? Where is your attention? 
Um, all those things I think matter and you just kind of have to weigh all those parts of it. Um, and you have to communicate with your partners. Ultimately, you have to talk to these guys about what they want out of it, like what you want out of it. Because you might say, I want to just make a few million and then I would call it a day. Mm -hmm. Whereas he might be like, I want to make 10 or 20, you know, and call it a day. And another guy might be like, I want to turn this into 50. Well, you can kind of tell where your numbers are going and where the whole business is going. And it may not get to that point. Or if it does get to yours first, are you like, do I want to sell? You know, I, I want to sell it a few million, but it's going to be worth, you know, 10 or 20 in the next f three to five years. So it's a hard time to say that, you know, the exact right point, but just going through the experience, talking to your partners, weighing all the pros and cons, analyzing it of where you want to spend your time, where you want to spend your money. And if the return of what you're getting out of it is worth it for you, those are all different things that I think you need to weigh that'll tell you like, okay, it's probably time for me to exit and start my yeah. next thing. I like, the, I like that. That brings me to another thought based off this, what you were saying is, and when we're thinking about entrepreneurs and we're thinking about people who start these types of, you know, businesses or, you know, organizations like you have, rather than ask, what do you look for in a leader for these type of organizations? I'm going to ask, what do you look for in a partner? Because I think that's a very good question. I keep hearing you use the word partner. So what do you look for in a partner for these types of, you know, endeavors? Um, that they, one, it's, I, I like to find guys that share the common interest of the business, common love of the business that you're in, common passion about it. Uh, they share the same vision of where you want to see this business go. Um, they share the same kind of, uh, direct, like they, they share a lot of those same parts of the financial aspect of the business on, and how to run it. Um, and what role they want to do, things like that. I think that you, you start looking for those things in, in a partner that are like experts in the field too. Like um, this person, it, it, some guys that have had success in what they were doing. Those are all things that I think that you have to look for. Uh, and someone that you can get along with, that you can know that if you spend you know tons of time with this person that you're not going to get sick of them. And you, you know, because <laughs> There's going to be so much time you can spend, even you guys on this pod, right? You're going to spend a lot of time with each other and do that. And you got to make sure you guys get along and stuff. So those are some things as well. And I think it's got to be like that common shared interest that you can communicate and get through anything, any challenge, and that you guys can get through it together, you know, to go to go to battle with these guys. So those are, some, those are a lot of different things that I think you can look for. Awesome. And then do you have, because behind every, you know, great entrepreneur, there's always like this community of people that have built, uh, that have helped like get that person to where they are. Do you have any mentors or coaches that helped you get um, to where you are today? And would you say having a mentor is helpful? Absolutely. I think that everybody needs a mentor. Everybody needs someone that you can talk to and pass ideas by. Um, like all those things are good things, especially um, because not everybody has the same viewpoints that you might have. And if you talk to an outsider that might be your mentor, the way that they look at things might be differently than you. So yeah, I've got a few. Uh, John Bebling is a guy that uh, has helped me a lot in my kind of business career. Um, like I mentioned, Gavin. Gavin um, helped me. He's from Casey Moore's and he's, he's now a real estate guy. 
but he helped me early on in the bar kind of aspect. Obviously, my dad's um, partner, Shirley, and, and uh, my par current partner now, Sean, my distillery partners, you know, Jason, Matt, and those dudes um, helped me. My current dispensary partners, James, Nick, and Dixon, we've, we, you know, they've, they've all helped, helped me. And I think that all those people have definitely helped me in my time of, of doing all my businesses, for sure. What piece of advice would you give to college graduates who want to become an entrepreneur? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, for college graduates just coming out, um, graduating, and starting their own businesses, I would say I would get into the grind. And what I mean by get into the grind is I would probably try to find a, a full-time gig that a good paying one that kind of like will help you income wise to kind of get an income if you don't want to go all in on your business right away so you can start generating some kind of money for yourself um, to do both and the reason why I say to do both is because it's always good to have some cushion to fall back on because if you go all in on your business and your business doesn't succeed right away like you'd want it to financially wise how are you gonna live you know you like it's it's not easy to pay all your bills and to, to, to get, deal with the day-to-day -day and, and, you know, and handle all the everyday parts of living. It's, it costs money. So to be able to do that, I think that you can go through the struggle of trying to go all in on the business and do that. But my recommendation would always be, and I, I just say this for the more risk-averse people because I've just seen so many guys be like, oh, I'm gonna go in all in, I'm gonna start, and then they're like, six months later, like, oh man, I wish I would've had something to, some kind of income, even if it's a part-time gig that mm. paid me something to kind of get through those down times of a business. Because every business goes through ups and downs for sure. And you wanna be able to withstand those down times as you're a startup business. Um, and to do that, you've gotta, ha you've gotta have some kind of income. Well, any last words for audiences? Maybe uh, a quote that you love, or maybe something where uh, advice, best advice that's been given to you down from like your father or mentor, or any sort of book recommendations for entrepreneurs. Oh, there's so many. I'll give you. I'll send you a list of, of ones that you can mention on the show. It's hard for me to say that there's like one particular uh -huh. one. Um, the best piece of advice is. You know, don't ever let people tell you that you can't, you know, that you can't do this or you can't do that and get disappointed and have that just bring you down and, and you can't overcome this, or you can't overcome that. It's all about like pushing through, getting it done, take care of business, staying positive. All those things I feel that um, are good to just have that positivity. I think that you there there's always going to be failure there's always going to be things that you go through um, starting your business but it's all about how you learn from those times and keep pushing forward and keep um, staying positive about your business or what you're trying to do and, and like i said just start setting goals for yourself of how you want to do it and when you start achieving those little goals the bigger ones will start happening and you'll start knocking them down. And it's all about your your perspective and how you look at things. Like always try to keep a, a good positive perspective on, on your business and stuff. Wonderful, thank you so much, Rodney. I appreciate the time awesome. that you took here with us. Um, and then thank you 
Luis for being here. <laughs> uh, taking in place for our other co-host, Ryan. Uh, so, uh, thank you, listeners. Uh, stay tuned for our next podcast. And you all have a wonderful day. Now, in this part of the podcast, Rodney, who just wanted to give a special shout out to his family and his friends. I need to give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Kathy, and my family, Ethan and Sophia, my daughter. Um, those are my, my babies. I love them. I'll give a shout out to my one and only Whitney Ritchie. How's it going, Whitney? <laughs>